0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish life. We
1: are Irish life.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined by Jack Horgan-Jones of the Irish Times to discuss the impact of institutional landlords on the Irish property market. Are they responsible for rising rents and are they pushing first-time buyers out of the market in Dublin? In the second half of the show, Simon Carswell will explain why the Director of Corporate Enforcement, Ian Drennan, Feels he can't supply an Oroctus committee with a report on the collapse of the Sean Fitzpatrick trial in 2015. But first, we'll begin with a roundup of some of the major business stories of the week. And I'm joined in the studio for this by Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. Now, we're going to begin with Debenhams, which has run into a bit of trouble in the UK.
1: It has. It entered pre pack administration on Tuesday. That's a process that doesn't require shareholder approval, it is a court process, and it allows the company to keep operating as normal to some degree and the move means at the moment at least, that the company's 11 stores in the Republic are unaffected.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, You say it doesn't require shareholder approval. That's presumably because they wouldn't get shareholder approval no, because it has wiped out shareholders. Indeed, yeah. That's all been, of the shareholders have been wiped that. out. And one of those uh, is, is
1: Mike Ashley. So lenders have effectively taken control um, mm. after the company rejected a financing officer, er, offer from, from Sports Direct Chief Executive Mike Ashley. People w- may be familiar with Mr Ashley who's been wooing the company for some time now Uh what what has happened here follows a months-long battle between Debenhams and, and Ashley. Uh, he with, had
0: nearly 30% of the business, didn't he? That's
1: right, just under 30%, uh, with lenders uh, seeking, you know, the, the company has, has a fairly significant debt load, and its lenders have been seeking to protect their investment. Um, now, interest, interestingly, in a statement on Tuesday afternoon, uh, Ashley issued a fairly scathing um, statement now to the stock exchange, and he called the uh, administration a national scandal, and he said, as normal, politicians and regulators fiddled whilst Rome burnt. These politicians and regulators have proven to be as effective as a chocolate teapot.
0: Mm. He's quite an interesting character, uh, Mr. Ashley, isn't he? He's, he's been buying up uh, various assets on the high street. He seems to still believe in bricks and mortar, although he's been trying to
1: get them on the cheap. He seems to be one of the few that has confidence in UK bricks and mortar, and uh, as you mentioned, there he he has been picking up assets, including House of Fraser. People will be familiar yeah. with that. He also made an offer previously for for Debenhams in in the Republic for their operation in the Republic, but wasn't successful. and And of late, has made uh, a series of offers to buy its Danish stores, for example, and possible equity raises, and none of that came to fruition. What's going to happen now is Debenhams is still planning to close fifty of its two hundred forty one stores. They try and reduce rents to tackle the efforts of the the effects, of, rather, of the wider crisis in UK retail. So, I suppose it remains to be seen what will ultimately happen. Happen with it, Ashley may will may well still be looking at it. Uh, but
0: it's on yeah. are you a Debenhams uh, shopper, Peter? What's your view on them as a I, retailer? I,
1: I, I do. I, I mean, I suppose the common view, not just my view, is that Debenhams has become a bit tired of late and and noticeably haven't done much in the way of store investment and. While their rivals, and it's I suppose in the UK, John Lewis is, is its big rival. Uh, there has been investment there, so. Debenhams needs money and it's sitting on such a significant debt pile that that makes it rather difficult I would have thought.
0: All right, we'll see how that plays out. Now the Central Bank is looking for a new governor because Philip Lane is off to the European Central Bank. He's got a plum role there in Frankfurt. He's going to be taking up that position in the summer and so we need a new head at the Central Bank of Ireland.
1: Yeah, indeed we do and I suppose new candidates emerged this week. Uh, one of those was John Fell. He's the most senior Irish member of staff at the European Central Bank and the other was Colm O'Reardon and he's the uh, Deputy Secretary General at the Department of Health formerly mm. a, an advisor to Eamon Gilmore when he was tarnished
0: I should say that John Fell is a brother of uh, the late Charlie Fell who was a former columnist uh, with the Irish Times um, Anyway, go on Right, uh, and, and I suppose the at the
1: moment Sharon Donnery is still hotly tipped mm. uh, to become the first woman and indeed the first internal candidate to head up the institution just to, to row back a small bit Sharon Donnery was unsuccessful when she applied for another role in the European Central Bank uh, or, She got down to this the last two yeah. She got down to the last two I suppose is a bit of politicking going on there uh, and that could well be one of the reasons that, that she wasn't successful. In any event, she is um, she's hotly tipped to become the next leader. Uh, other candidates include Andrew McDowell, the uh, Vice President of the European Investment Bank and Robert Watt, the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. So there are a few names in the mix there.
0: Yes, I think Robert Watt was in the mix last time around. And, and
1: he was tipped, as far as I remember, he was tipped to be successful the last time around and he was pipped at the post by Philip Lane.
0: Yes, I'm are bearing in mind that these are traditionally posts that would have went to senior civil servants but with the crash they broke that trend the government broke that trend by appointing um, Patrick Patrick Honaghan who was an academic and obviously Philip Lane an academic as well we'll see how that also uh, plays out now you were on a special mission last week to Donegal Airport to get a look under the bonnet behind the scenes pull back the curtain on what goes on there on a daily basis what did you discover? Well I suppose it's worth saying from the offset people
1: a lot of people probably aren't familiar with Donegal Airport given that its passenger numbers are small at about 46,500 a year so it is a small facility uh, an outpost in Donegal but extremely important to the local region uh, as as they would be very keen to point yeah, out. Yeah and it's
0: worth remembering there's no rail line uh, no from rail Dublin line. or anywhere else in the republic to Donegal those they were taken up a long long time ago and most people in the republic again if they want to go by road to Donegal they have to cut across northern ireland.
1: That's right and i suppose from that area from
0: the northwest
1: uh, and the area where the where the airport is near guidor it's about a four-hour drive to Dublin so it's not easy to hold down a job and I suppose some of the people I spoke to up in Donegal Airport said that they worked in Dublin and used the airport for personal reasons. They they flew down on a Monday, flew back on a Friday and it was great for that reason. I I suppose they're trying to increase what happens up there, increase their passenger numbers up there uh, by attracting to people who want to live in the county. It is a beautiful place. Uh, Dunglow is nearby, lovely, lovely spot and some investment going on there. Um, The problem, I suppose, is that the airport is quite expensive. Uh, It received capital grants of £4.8 between 2006 and 2016 in addition to operational support and the the PSO route, which this which is so a daily PSO, isn't it? That's right. Uh, it going seven from days a week. Uh,
0: Dublin to Donegal, it's operated by Stobart there. Yeah. and it's one of only two PSOs that are left there. There used to be a lot more, but mm. um, one of the, is a good value for money uh, for taxpayers? Peter, it's it's very it is very expensive. Look, I
1: suppose it, it, the 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 capital grants they've received are significant, and we don't know how much the PSO pays, but Donegal also gets landing charges from Stobart. They have a. a Sobart operates on behalf of Aer Lingus It's the Aer Lingus regional yeah, service that's it and and i suppose the what's interesting is that Loganair another carrier operates five times weekly flights to to uh, Glasgow uh, because of the strong links Donegal has with Glasgow but so there's obviously some scope to do commercial flights there but it's unclear whether the PSO route would be able to operate commercially because the load factor uh, one person up there told me was about 60% which is which is very low I suppose Ryanair would run a load factor in excess of 95% across its entire fleet so it is quite low but of increasing importance is the onward connections that its passengers are making and Pauline Sweeney the airport's marketing manager told me all about that
2: we we would have through fares as well on the Aer Lingus network to over 14 North American airports and Canada as well. And on the route, um, say for instance in 2018, the breakdown would have been of uh, our passengers making the onward connections would be in around 23% US Canada, uh, 35 European and in around 37 UK with the
3: balance there going on to UAE.
0: That's quite interesting, Peter, isn't it? A lot of people flying on to North America, as you mentioned, uh, UAE, uh, and obviously going to the UK and Europe etc so that is an important connection in addition to the just the Dublin uh, Donegal traffic that you mentioned earlier some of which is commuter traffic effectively
1: It certainly is and uh, the student fares as well for example for just under 30 euro uh, where you can fly with a free check on bag but what I suppose what's also important is business I spoke to one businessman up there who said they had six flights booked in one week alone and that was to bring people to Dublin for training to bring them up for onward connections for negotiations and things like that it is very Important to the region. Um, again, I suppose the caveat is it's heavily heavily subsidised, but it does give rise to an annual uh, payment to the exchequer of about two hundred and sixty grand. And inbound tourists contribute about two point six million, which creates about two twenty six jobs in the area.
0: And Look, how many how many people employed at the actual airport? I mean, presumably they all have multiple jobs. They're carrying the bags. They're out on the the runway. They're Clean the toilets, whatever it might be.
1: Absolutely, there are thirty people employed. They would cut the grass. They'd be there when the aircraft lands to take off the bags. Uh, now you have separate people doing air traffic control. That's very strict process, but multitasking all the time. Uh, the person who'll be running the cafeteria will also be at the check-in desk and so on. It's it's look, it's a it's a well-oiled machine. Uh, they operate
2: on
0: a tight enough budget. At, you know when when all is said and done. Now, Peter, down at Kerry Airport, there was a very interesting, or confirmation at least, of a very interesting appointment to the board of directors. Tell us about that.
1: That's right. A uh, very substantial investor in what is a PLC, uh, the Saudi Arabian billionaire banking family, the Bin Mahfouz family. They put one of they put a representative on the board, Sammy Harris. Um, I suppose that they they, they run. They've been a, investors for a long time. It seems they have. They joined in the in the ninth, the early nineteen nineties. Uh, in return for visas, at the time there was investment
0: uh, for for visas yeah, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, that was a scheme yeah. that was run uh, many years ago. Uh, what's the significance for Kerry Airport? That's the other one that has a PSO route uh, from Dublin. It does, as you mentioned, it's it's one of the last remaining two. I suppose
1: the significance is they have this rich backer uh, amongst their ranks, and Kerry has been relatively successful in attracting other airlines like Ryanair. Ryanair operates a series of routes there during the summer, so now would be the time with a backer like this uh, or with a family who backs it like this now would be the time to look to try and get out stand, uh, on, its stand two feet. on its own two feet get out of the state's shackles if it could and perhaps this will be the way to do that
0: Alright and unlike Donegal they actually have a rail line as well they have a rail connection to
1: that area too Very well connected in Farron for uh, a village with a, a population below 100 people
0: Right, okay Alright Peter Hamilton. thank you for joining us now, institutional landlords in Ireland have grabbed a sizeable share of the Irish rental market in recent years. With some obvious knock-on consequences, these include spiraling rents and first-time buyers being pushed out of the market in Dublin. It's estimated that the likes of Iris Reid, Kennedy Wilson, and others have spent more than one billion euro last year buying assets here, mainly in Dublin, and they have another seven billion available to spend, according to uh, property experts. Jack Horgan Jones of the Irish Times uh, joins me in studio to discuss their impact. Uh, it's it's caught the attention of policymakers. I think it's fair to say, Jack.
3: Yeah, it has, and I think I think what's underpinning uh, the the attractiveness of Ireland to these institutional landlords is this once in a, I mean, i a to say once in generation, but really it's a it's a once in the history of Irish independence shift from. Ireland being a nation of homeowners to being uh, largely more, more uh, predominantly a nation of of renters. So um, historically the Irish, the, the social policy of successive Irish governments has been to encourage home ownership and that led to record levels of home ownership I think it peaked in 1991 at about 79.2% and um, that in turn was encouraged by, you know, tax reliefs, grants, mortgage interest reliefs, all these kind of interventions in the in the housing market which became increasingly unpopular during the 1980s and 1990s as we moved to a more kind of, you know, liberal bank-led financing model um, and since then we've seen the level of home ownership dropping. It now actually interesting Enough. It's coming in below the EU average. We're at sixty-seven point two percent, and the EU is at sixty-nine point. Sorry, we're at sixty-seven point six. The EU sixty-nine point two. So basically, Ireland is is largely becoming. uh, more so, a nation of 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 renters, and we have an influx also of, of well paid uh, tech workers coming from overseas who are willing to pay these higher rents. And we have also a government that has uh, focused in in large part on encouraging overseas money into the Irish property market, partially out of a, born out of a desire to break that link between the, the the domestic Irish financing system and the property sector. So these names, like the likes of Ires Reed, the likes of Kennedy Wilson have, um, on the back of this kind of tidal congruence of different trends, made Ireland their home and made Ireland their home in a very big way. Now, it's worth pointing out that they're not actually, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, the majority landlords. What's the share of the market? I think... Overall, it's it's no more than between 3 and 5% for landlords that have tenancies of 100 or more. So yeah. it's still quite small. But what if, if you look at the absolute figure, then you miss the growth that's happened in the last few years. I mean, traditionally, because Irish rental has been a small sector, it's been dominated by the kind of mom and pop landlords and the accidental landlords and the buy-to-let investors that came along during mm. the Celtic Tiger. Basically, people who might have between one and a maybe had an absolute maximum of five properties, you know, people who effectively, you know, guards, teachers and nurses, people are buying them as investment properties for their pension income. Um, and now we're undergoing a, 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 a sea change in the kind of provision and, and the quality and type of landlord um, that Irish renters are going to be renting from in the future.
0: No, it's worth reminding people that one of the reasons they're here is because of the financial crash. There were all sorts of uh, fallout consequences of that. But one of them, was the the fact that there was nobody was prepared to lend any money to Ireland so we had to go into a bailout uh, with the IMF and with the EU uh, and as a result in a bid to try and stir the property market the Fine Gael Labour government that came in in 2011 introduced this tax break whereby if you bought Irish property and held it for 7 years you could sell it uh, basically free of any capital gains uh, tax a uh, very uh, for those who believed in the Irish property market and its viability in the long term it was a very lucrative uh, tax break and um, Kennedy Wilson in particular were one of the first uh, to get into the market, and they bought some assets at very, very knockdown prices. I mean, dirt cheap prices. They bought apartment blocks and they, they bought uh, buildings, uh, shells of buildings that they could develop into apartment blocks. And IRES uh, followed the same route.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you have you have kind of two two factors coming together there. You have the. Absolute uh, rock bottom asset prices, as you say. So you could either buy the debt or you could buy the asset itself. Mm-hmm. And if you bought the debt, it was fairly easy to pursue what they call a loan to own strategy, in which you end up actually owning the property in not too distant future after buying the debt. And then, as you say, you have uh, all these various tax goodies. The most obvious of which is the the the, the CGT holiday uh, after seven years upon disposal. And um, but there were other uh, regimes introduced, like the real estate investment trust regime. Mm. You know, shortened or
0: operates on. Which
3: IRES operates Operates under, in which several other large institutional uh, property investors operate under the REIT regime, um, and as, as as we've identified, that was part of a, a wider kind of Noonanomics, Fine and a Kenny uh led strategy to encourage um basically transnational capital flows into into ireland and and part of that was to as i said as i said earlier break the link between uh, the domestic financing system and the property sector but also it was to break the link between irish investors and the property sector, they didn't particularly want, and John Warren who was the Secretary General of the Department of Finance at the time, didn't particularly want, you know, uh, just the, the man in the street investing in a, in a rental property anymore. He wanted them to be able to buy shares because they were easier to diversify away from sell in the event of a downturn. But basically, as you've correctly identified, uh, where we're at right now is the end point of several years, nigh on a decade, really, of purposeful policy making, which has opened the doors to these funds. And what we've seen, we,
0: we have a shift now because obviously the economy is back in growth and the property market has taken off again. And what we've seen in the past, I suppose, a year or so um, are some developers like uh, Cairn Homes, uh, for example, which is a publicly traded company, an Irish builder. Um, it has decided to sell off some of its development assets as a job lot to some of these institutional landlords. The benefit for them is that they get uh, significant cash flow. They presumably get a good price as well. And they don't have to go through the hassle of marketing these uh, apartments individually, spending all of that cash. Uh, it's basically somebody else's problem after that. But the consequence is that first-time buyers are uh, finding it very difficult to get on the property ladder.
3: Absolutely. So what you've identified there is, is is the really kind of voguish thing in Irish property at the moment. They call it PRS, private rental sector. Um, and And effectively, as you say, that involves, rather than building a block of apartments and selling them off one by one, for between three and five hundred grand to to normal punters, you sell them off in one job lot. And the reason why big companies, big home builders like Cairn and Glenveigh, are so interested in doing this, it just makes incredible financial sense for them because of the yields that are available on Irish residential rents at the moment. That means that people who are investing in this PRS sector can actually afford to pay significantly more to the developer than the developer might reasonably expect to get from selling them off one by one by one. So I wrote an article in Saturday's paper looking at these kind of trends and, and the changing face of Irish home ownership and, one, and an industry person showed me an analysis that they'd done of a nominal block of 50 apartments in Dublin and the developer could expect to take in about 17.5 million euros in revenue from selling them off one by one or 24 million euros in revenue up front from selling them to a PRS investor who's going to rent them out um, as, as rental units. So, like if you if you're it's a no-brainer for it, for it's a no brainer for them it's an absolute no brainer but as again that means that those uh, apartments aren't coming to market for first time buyers it means that people are looking around and saying not only am i constrained by these quite onerous rules on credit growth that the central bank have uh, around uh, the macroprudential rules but also if i'm lucky enough to actually get approved for a loan where's the stock for me who's building for me um, and that presents more kind of fundamental problems and questions and mm. challenges as you go forward because in Ireland we've had a, a system whereby, you know, because so many people own their homes, your home kind of became your social welfare and your pension all rolled into one when you retired because your your housing costs disappeared when you, had, when you paid off your mortgage. Um, and you could also maybe liquidate the asset if you needed extra income or refinance it if you wanted to send your kids to college. If you have a group of people, a cohort, a large generational cohort of people aged between maybe 25 and 40, Going through life, paying rent, and at the end of it, effectively having nothing to show when they leave the workforce, that creates a massive problem down the track. A social
0: problem, yeah. It's building up a social problem, isn't it's it? A hu- Definitely. It's a huge social
3: because problem because when you
0: come to retire, how can you afford these uh, sky-high rents that are being charged uh, at the minute? I mean, rents in Dublin have gone through the roof over the past few years, haven't
3: they? Yeah, they have. Like, so I mean, you've had th- some
0: statistics on that recently.
3: Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that you know the top end of the market in in, in Dublin is probably between three and a half and four thousand for an apartment but that's not really representative I think any any reasonable you know apartment in a reasonable part of town for two beds or so I think you're probably looking at upwards of two thousand euros at the moment which is a very high percentage of people's disposable take home so not only do you have the the, the long off in the future problem of someone exiting the rental sector with no asset you also have like a more immediate problem because rent growth is outstripping people's uh, wage growth so they're having to spend and larger percentages of larger percentages of their income on their rent, and that then can provide a break on the rest of the economy. Because if you're reaching in your pocket for so much rent, then you might not have, have have the money in your pocket when you want to go out for a meal, when you want to go to the pub, when you want to go to the cinema, and that slows down the consumer economy as well. So there's this kind of imbalance um, structurally. We're not prepared, and kind of economically and socially, I don't think we've kind of thought about it well from a policy point of view. Um, when it comes to tackling the implications of this move from home ownership to renting. If we're going to do this, we have to do it right, and the policy solutions need to be as dramatic as the trend that's going on. Yeah, so what should the government do? Well, I think there's a couple of things they can do short term. Um, I think they can improve the lot of renters by uh, making the 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 RPZs, the rent pressure zones, uh, more wide ranging and perhaps more permanent. They're the rules that that limit rental increases. They can improve the quality. Well,
0: it limits it to correct me if I'm wrong four percent over two years. Four
3: percent over two years, and which isn't hefty, nothing.
0: That's still hefty enough. Now, if you're paying, if you're already paying two grand, yeah, uh, a month four percent on that over the course of two years. Absolutely. And where's
3: where's wage inflation at the moment? As well, I mean, in some sectors it's huge, but in most sectors it's not. It's, at it's, best, it's, a,
0: it's it's wiping out your wage inflation.
3: At best, and mm-hmm. and then you have CPI as well. Um, so that's gonna that's gonna balance that out there as well. Um, so you 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 could you know, look at doing something around the RPZs. You can look at doing something around improving security of tenure, um, you know, longer term leases so people can uh, effectively commit to a property over, you know, a decade or more as opposed to one or two years. So they can plan, they can plan to have a family, they can plan to settle down, put their roots in a community and that in- that improves things for renters. But I think really the only thing that's going to make this shift towards renting sustainable is actually making rents cheaper. Like, so long as you are maxed out on rent and not able to invest in a pension or a share portfolio that might support yeah, but hold you... On. you know, I mean,
0: isn't the government actually contributing to this problem through the HAP uh, payments because they're giving very substantial uh, HAP payments to people who can't afford their own properties, uh, essentially. And this is feeding into the inflation. I mean, landlords know full well yeah. that if somebody comes to their door and... They have a a, a housing allowance from the states that they've got a lot of money in their back pocket and they can afford um, these rents, these saucy rents that they're charging.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the housing assistance payment, which is basically a top-up from the government to the private sector, um, is one of the government policies, one of the only government policies on housing and homelessness that is working really well. The problem is that it's working too well. I mean, it's had an enormous increase across the last few years and now is, is a major line item in the Department of Housing's budget. But as you correctly identify... It, there, there is a strong uh, argument to be made for uh, this HAP payment actually supporting high rents in and of itself. Like if your HAP payment is €1,200 Euros a month or something like that, and you're topping that up through your own five or €600, Euros, that's contributing as well to an environment whereby rents universally are higher and landlords universally are benefiting as well, not only from... Cash-strapped renters, but also from the state. So surely, one solution is for the state to actually
0: build some properties that could then be rented out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and some of the some of the most I I almost had to check myself during the week because some of the most red-blooded capitalists I know these these are guys with share portfolios and second homes. They're turning around to me and saying the answer to this is social housing. You know the answer to this is state-led intervention in the housing in the housing market, whether that is you know social housing provided through local authorities or something like a cost rental model, which is something that a lot of people are talking about at the moment, which could be interesting, um, which would provide a solution for the rental market whereby the rent is determined by the cost of construction and financing something versus basically charging whatever the market will will uh, will accept. Um, so I think there needs to be more active intervention. I think there needs to be more original thinking. Um, otherwise we're looking at a situation where there's just a massive transfer of wealth from the renting class to the landlord class. And, you know, in economics, there's something called rent-seeking behavior, and it's generally not something that is thought to be fruitful or, or, or something that should be encouraged. But if we don't do something, that is kind of exactly yeah. what we are encouraging.
0: Another option is to, to try and stop this uh, selling of uh, apartment blocks as a job lot to institutional landlords is to tax those transactions
3: in a way that would discourage them. Yeah, or tax them at all. Um, So last year, uh, around budget time, there was a suggestion that uh, stamp duty was going to be reformed around the the residential uh, space to include these large-scale single... Um, blocks of of apartments transacting in one go. And that was heavily rumoured, heavily leaked, heavily briefed. I mean, people I talked to in the sector at the time kind of took this as a given that it was going to happen. Uh, And then, as I understand, at the last minute, there were concerns, particularly emanating from the Department of Housing, that something like this could uh, discourage investment in Irish housing at a time when we need capital flowing into the sector. So it was abandoned and dropped on the floor. I would be shocked if we don't return to something like that um, this budget. Uh, so at the very least, the government could say, yeah, we've encouraged all these guys in and they're buying up all the apartments, but at least we're taxing them now and maybe we can throw some of that money back towards social housing or something.
0: Yeah, it's fair to say, isn't it? Or is it fair to say um, property developers, builders, uh, investors, these property investors deleting the government uh, and Mary dancing this whole issue? I think they're they're pulling the strings in uh, terms of this
3: housing crisis. I think I think they're to a certain extent. Like I mean, I think I think they're they're part of the solution. But there's this line that, that that a lot of the institutional landlords trot out, which is you know effectively we we are the whole solution. I mean that's that's a nonsense. At the moment, they're a small part of the of the sector providing uh, apartments to the top end of the market at an expensive rate and paying themselves extremely well. If that's what the solution, the Irish solution to the Irish housing crisis, is going to look like, I don't think it's much of a solution at all.
0: All right. And any word from Owen Murphy on his solution
3: for this problem? Uh, No, the the, the silence from the customs house on this is is fairly deafening.
0: Yeah, Owen Murphy being our housing minister, of course. All right, Jack horgan jones thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Simon Carswell of the Irish Times about why the Director of Corporate Enforcement, in Drennan, feels he can't supply an Neuroctis committee with a report on the collapse of Sean Fitzpatrick's trial and its investigation into Anglo-Irish back. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach
1: to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life
0: Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, the full reasons for the collapse of the trial of former Anglo-Irish Bank chairman Sean Fitzpatrick in 2015 And his acquittal at a retrial in 2017 may never be made public after a state watchdog decided to withhold a lengthy report on the case. Director of Corporate Enforcement, Ian Drennan, has withdrawn his offer to provide a 415-page report on the case to an Oireachtas Committee because it could not give him guarantees he wanted to legally protect his office from litigation risk. Mr Drennan had previously offered a report to the Joint Oroctus Committee on Business, Enterprise and Innovation to help it understand why the trial collapsed as part of its scrutiny of new legislation strengthening the ODCE's Simon Carswell wrote the story this week and he joins me now in studio. Simon, uh, to begin with, you might just recap uh, quickly, if you don't mind, on what happened in relation to the
2: Sean Fitzpatrick and Anglo-Irish Bank investigation. Sean Fitzpatrick, who's chairman of the bank and previously chief executive, he was accused of uh, furnishing false information to the bank's auditors, Ernest and Young, now known as EY, over a period of years relating to his multi-million euro loans at the bank, which were concealed um, in a bed and breakfasting arrangement over the year end every year. So what would happen is the loans would be swapped out basically by taking fresh loans with Irish Nationwide just before the auditors came in to take a snapshot of the bank's accounts and then once the snapshot was taken the loans would go back into Anglo-Irish Bank so the public was unaware of the extent of his borrowings from the bank until the banking crisis and and the government sent in public interest directors into the bank and that's when they emerged at that point. Right. And uh,
0: as I mentioned earlier, uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, his trial collapsed in 2015 when it emerged that some documents had been shredded by an ODC official. And then in 2017, there was a retrial uh, and he was acquitted by the judge um, because of uh, issues around how the... Uh, investigation etc was handled by the ODC
2: Yeah it was a considerable retrial it was 126 days long it was I think it's the second lar- longest uh, criminal trial in history of the state uh, passed, surpassed by the recent trial of Patrick Hutch in relation to one of the gangland killings and the Sean Fitzpatrick retrial collapsed because the judge in the case Judge John Aylmer uh, took issue with how the investigation was run. He basically found that the ODC were taking statements by committee, essentially. They were consulting with Ernest and Young and Ernest Young's solicitors, a and Goodbody, on how they would put together a statement in the criminal investigation and that's not on. That, that, that contaminates the evidence process. Uh, the judge effectively said Sean Fitzpatrick can't get a fair trial in this case and he acquitted, he directed the jury to acquit Mr Fitzpatrick after 126 days. Yeah.
0: Now, Ian Drennan... Uh, Director of Corporate Enforcement subsequently undertook a review. Uh, a 415-page uh, report was produced, but it's never actually been published. It's never... Uh, the Oireachtas Business Committee has, um, has sought the full report, but he hasn't provided
2: it to them. Why not? Well, it all goes back to this new legislation that's supposed to be coming into effect. This is the legislation which is beefing up the powers of the ODC on the back of the failures identified in the Sean Fitzpatrick investigation and the subsequent collapse of the trial. And this legislation is due to set up what's called the Corporate Enforcement Authority, which turns the ODC, rather than an agency of a government department, into a standalone mm. state authority, a much stronger entity to be able to investigate white collar crime. As Taoiseach Leveragh says, the equivalent of like an Irish FBI when it comes to investigating white collar crime. So the Oireachtas Committee on Business, Enterprise and Innovation, which is the reporting committee that would look at this investigation to see what exactly it's going to do, what kind of powers it will give to the ODC or the new ODC, new authority. And as part of that, uh, Ian Drennan suggested, well, you uh, want to find out what happened in the Sean Fitzpatrick trial, you want to scrutinise our role in that, and as part of that, you you want to do that with the purpose of looking at this legislation to see if if it's fit fit for purpose, if the legislation needs to be changed in any way to give us different powers, new powers, and so he offered to provide a report to the committee. Now, what's different about this report was it was going to go into much wider remit. He had been asked by the Minister for Justice at the time, um, Francis Fitzgerald, to do a report um, and that report was to be done basically to set out the failures within the ODC. And when that report was handed in, uh, Heather Humphreys, the Minister for Business, was due to publish it And because uh, she's the reporting minister. And uh, in, a, in the end, it wasn't published. Uh, she published a 30-page summary, which really didn't go into the level of detail that was... Um, well, it wasn't published in full? Well, she was advised by um, the, the, she was advised at the time by the Attorney General uh, that she she should not publish it because it might breach Companies Act and she said that um, it was highly sensitive information with regard to how the ODC did its business so it was not in the interest of the state for it to be published and she said in fact that she would be breaking the law and that led to all sorts of calls from opposition, opposition TDs the likes of Independent TD Mick Wallace who said it really it should be an independent inquiry into all this business as to what happened how the investigation was botched and how the how the trial collapsed so Ian Drennan, that, okay, so the reporting line to the Minister didn't work in that case, so the second reporting line that um, the ODC has to report into is the Oireachtas, is the parliamentary system. And so the Oireachtas Committee were offered this report and there was correspondence going back and forth for quite some time. This has been kicking around for almost two years since the Sean Fitzpatrick trial collapsed. And uh, Ian Drennan was willing to give them the report and the committee were willing to accept it, but they were back. there have been back and forth over the last two months about whether legal privilege would be attached, attached to that report. So Ian Drennan was obviously very concerned and he set this out in correspondence with the committee. He said it potentially exposes the ODC to litigation risk. risk which goes, who? Well, he had... But he has said that there are a number of people named in the report. So, if you look at who are the players involved in this whole saga, the likes of the current and former staff of the ODCE, current and former Gardaí, A&L Goodbody, uh, solicitors, who are solicitors to E and uh, Ernest and Young, EY, uh, DPP, and various other parties would be mentioned in this report. So, he obviously wanted to protect himself. And the only way he could do that legally was to be given privilege by the committee by the Oireachtas committee Um, and he sought it and there was correspondence going back and forth now he maintains he was offered verbal assurances that he would get that he said he was at a loss in in one of the more recent letters he said he's at a loss as to why they can't give those verbal assurances he got in written form in written guarantees that would protect him and cover him against any potential litigation and that's where it ended the Oireachtas committee was unable to provide the guarantees that he was looking for and on that basis last Friday he wrote to the committee's chairwoman uh, Mary Butler the Fianna Fáil and said, I'm withdrawing the offer of the report. And that's where it stands right now.
0: And Kevin O'Connell, who was responsible for shredding the documents in 2015,
2: he'd offered to go in front of the committee as well, but only if they had already received the report. He had written to the committee earlier this year and he said there, he had some un- un- unerred information and he felt that it had been he'd been disproportionately blamed for what happened. He felt he'd been thrown under the bus uh, over the, the blame that had been uh, attached to the collapse of the Sean Fitzpatrick trial. Indeed, Ian Drennan himself Said in an opening statement before uh, when he appeared before the Roxas Committee in February, he said that the factors leading to the collapse of the trial extend well beyond the ODC's failures. So We're not quite sure where they extend to, the parties they bring in. And this report would have allowed us to look at that. And Kevin O'Connell had made it clear to the committee, I'm happy to come in and talk about it. But I'm ancillary to what you should be looking at. What you should be looking at is Ian Drennan's report. You should be asking him questions. And I'm happy to come in and fill in any gaps and provide any additional information that you require. Is the first
0: say that Ian Drennan was reluctant to appear before Heructus committees in the past?
2: Uh, he's been reluctant to appear uh, on the basis that he wanted them to be fully appraised. He wanted a fact-based inquiry and fact-based uh, questioning of him and his office as to what was going on. And at one point he offered, uh, in the correspondence, he said, I'm happy to come in and talk to you privately about um, the report that I've done and the work that I've done and and talk to you privately and then to have a public hearing. Um, now, they, he did have a public hearing and actually he, it, it, over the course of about almost two hours, he did go into some detail as to what happened. But he Wanted to really get into the detail of what actually happened through this report,
0: and why didn't they hear him in private session? Because it is within the gift of an Arachas committee to uh, hear witnesses in private session, isn't it?
2: It is a good question that, like, why couldn't they? Why couldn't they read the report in private? And I think his concern was, if I hand over this report to a committee. Um, and it doesn't have the legal privilege attached if it's leaked it exposes him because he's handed it over and he's named oh, Well Simon Rock, committee members would we'll never leak reports. Well of course but in private I think that yes he probably had some fears that it could end up in the public domain and without the legal privilege attached to it that would protect him. Yeah.
0: How much did the trial cost? That, I mean between 2015, 2017 and all of the work uh, that
2: was undertaken by the ODC do we have a figure for how much it's cost? Well it's significant. I mean it runs to hundreds of thousands of euros if not more than a million uh, if you look at some of the fees paid senior counsel for the prosecution and defense were paid 3000 euro each day for the state uh, by the state during the for each of the 126 days of the trial and the senior barristers were also paid uh, f- a 40000 initial brief fee to take the case which is vastly more than the normal brief fee of about almost 2000 you'd get and the two senior counsel earned in who prosecuted the trial earned over 400000 each including vat so we're trial. talking about millions here yeah, it's substantial. Substantial sum of money. Two trials running. And know, wasn't Sean Fitzpatrick on legal aid? He was. He was on legal aid, yeah, for the duration of the trial. So it's, um, it's a very, very costly uh, event for the state. And I mean, for that reason, and the fact that it was an investigation into one of the most high profile collapses or events leading to or circumstances surrounding one of the most high profile corporate collapses in the history of the Irish state, you'd expect that we should get to the bottom of what actually happened exactly. with the investigation. It's an to-
0: absolute outrage that millions have been spent on prosecuting these cases and Anglo brought the country to its knees. More than £30 was pumped into it. Foolishly, I suppose you can say now. And taxpayers haven't been
2: given a full account of what went wrong with the investigation. I think it's breathtaking. Um, One of the committee members, Billy Keller, Fianna Fáil TD, uh, said that it was an outrageous affront to parliamentary democracy and he's right. Uh, It's extraordinary that... Uh, an Aroctus committee that holds an agency of the state accountable for its actions cannot receive and read and publish a report into the findings of what went wrong within that agency when it came to investigating that very high profile failure.
0: And is that it? Is there no chance now? I mean, is there any way of getting this into the public domain?
2: Well, Kelleher himself has said, you know, we need to look at a way, you need to find a mechanism. By which we can release this, maybe through the door if it can't if it can't be found through the committee or to the parliamentary process. I mean, a big chilling effect. And I know the Supreme Court is still ruling on it. But the issue of the rehab case and Angela Kearns, who's taken um, the the Public Accounts Committee to the courts over its questioning of her and uh, the spending of public money. The fact that that case is still going on shows that. Uh, the Oireachtas committee system, the parliamentary accountability system to question people through Oireachtas committees is relatively powerless at this point and that really needs to be looked at. Um, It's kind of pointless when you think about state agencies report into one aspect of parliament which is the committee system and yet they cannot be held to account and they cannot have basic statutory reports that they've been asked to do or reports they've been asked to do and those reports cannot be published. All right.
0: It's a sorry state of affairs, uh, but Simon, uh, thank you for that recap. Thanks very much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Jack Horgan-Jones and Simon Carswell. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.